A fox knows many things, but a hedgehog knows one important thing. One important thing. One important thing. Welcome to the Spiritual Hedgehog Podcast, where we explore the role philosophy and faith play in your daily life. Here are your hosts, Sarah Gardner and Pastor Eric Dahl. Hi, everyone. I want to welcome you to this very special episode of the Spiritual Hedgehog Podcast. But to begin with, I want to just apologize about the audio quality. Uh, we experienced some problems in the recording of this episode where we had some radio interference. I've attempted to filter it out, but as a consequence of that, the voices aren't going to be as robust or, or full of uh, life as we would accustom to have. So I appreciate your patience with us as we grow this podcast and we uh, work out some technical issues. But the content of this episode, I think, is so important uh, that I just ask you to bear with us uh, during this time. And it's a rather lengthy conversation, so we've broken this uh, episode into two parts. So please come along with us on this really, uh, what I think is a really uh, important conversation about uh, emotional well-being, enlightenment as some people call it, and we're going to spend the next two episodes talking about what is emotional well-being, how do we define it, and in part two we're going to get into how do we actually get into uh, a period of prolonged uh, emotional well-being in our life. So uh, thank you for your patience. Thank you for joining us. And we look forward to hearing from you. And we'll be posting the entire show notes onto our website, uh, www.thespiritualhedgehog.com. All right, let's join the conversation. Well, so Kierkegaard, Ira, you've been, you've been reading some, some Kierkegaard a little bit. And, and as we're thinking about these things of enlightenment and um so what have you been reading you know and and what's what's been kind of capturing your imagination well i should preface this and say that not being a philosophy major um to read kierkegaard i think one has to have a um uh, a cliff notes next to them to you know <laughs> be able to say am i getting the language right because it is very dense yeah. Uh, language. And what's interesting is that I've gone down this path of investigating, you know, what is this idea of uh, the concept of enlightenment? And on the same um, kind of the same path, I've come across Kierkegaard's word about despair and really defining what the human condition is that creates a sense of despair defining what that is, and then uh, contrasting that with what is enlightenment and what is some contemporary vocabulary we can use to uh, describe enlightenment in terms that are meaningful and measurable, that we can actually put some um, ways of seeing where we are on the spectrum uh, with the goal that all of us uh, can be blessed with the gift of uh, health and well-being, at least emotional health and well-being is really what I'm talking about. Where physical limitations are physical limitations, but our emotion and our spirit can really uh, be elevated to a level that uh, keeps us in a, in a pretty uh, positive place to be. And, and I was excited to have this conversation with you because uh, when we get to the part of describing what is enlightenment, it deals with one of your pet peeves. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and so that's going to be a lot of fun. But uh, 
to me, it was interesting is, with Kierkegaard uh, is this idea that uh, humans by our very nature are uh, in a state of despair, whether we know it or not. Um, how many, you know, what, what's your, been your experience with Kierkegaard and, and some of his works? Um, yeah, so Kierkegaard, you know, I think for faith, you know, from, from a faith basis, he, he was the one that sort of came around to saying, you know, even, even if Christians are wrong about all of, you know, all of their, their, their theories, it's still a good thing because, you know, it's almost that apologetic where, because if they're, they're right, then, you know, all is good. And if they're wrong, you have nothing, you know, you didn't lose anything in, in, in the meantime. And, and what I took from that as a person of faith was to say, you know, we all are looking for a path to follow. Um, and, and in that path to follow, Jesus is one of many good teachers in there that, that, that can lead us to a sense of, of hope and, and wholeness and, and in the midst of that. So Kierkegaard was sort of the one that introduced me into that sort of thinking um, around that. Though, I, the, the, like I said, I probably spent the most time when I was taking philosophy classes you know, back in college, and you're right, it is thick, thick stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess what I'm curious about, Ira, is like if you were looking at those five, um, five things of, of despair. Yeah, five categories of despair. Yeah, yeah five categories. Do you, do you mind sharing them with us and kind of where it was capturing your, you know, your your imagination i'm kind of curious where you're going to go yeah well i i mean frankly and as i reflect back on my own life i see where i have gone through a progression of stages of despair that's very much in alignment with kierkegaard uh and so and, and the other thing i'm going to just throw in there is that kierkegaard's ideas about despair have a lot in common uh with the teachings in buddhism and the idea of suffering so the idea of, of suffering and despair have a lot in common. Uh, what I enjoyed about Kierkegaard was that he starts out by um, defining it as those that are in despair but completely unconscious of it, and those that are consciously aware of their despair. Uh, and so within the unconscious, which is to me kind of maps out to the evolution of the experience, um, the unconscious despair starts with what he calls the, the sensualist. Uh, and I think of it as the child that's the, you know, uh, give me a cookie, that, 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 that sensual experience of pleasure that can never be satisfied, that you're always moving on to the next thing, the next thing. And uh, as you progress uh, into adolescence and, and adulthood, uh, sensuality maybe gets wrapped up in the pursuit of uh, physical pleasure. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, in, in psychology, we talk about Peter Pan principle and the idea that some people get stuck just always in pursuit, having this drive that they're not even really aware of the trail of, of tears they're leaving behind or even just their, their own, um, own despair is, is unconscious until they hit that existential wall, that existential crisis that, that mm -hmm. all of a sudden makes them consciously aware of it. But within that other uh, category of the unconscious despair, he describes it as the, the people that build systems, the system builders, uh, the people that think they've got the world understood, the historians, the philosophers, the, 
the, the highly organized, that everything has to be just so, and that eventually gets destroyed through their own existential crisis that something doesn't fit the way it's supposed to. Uh, and I look at my own life and I go, yeah, check that box off, check that mm -hmm. box off. And then we get to the, you know, what do we do when we become aware of it? That, uh, that despair that we're aware of, um, do we run for it and consciously seek more material wealth, more materialism is, is to, to uh, put a salve over it? Uh, or do we um, end up having a, a spiritual um, kind of um, feeling like other people are the cause of my problems or they're outside of my control? Uh, the, the, you know, kind of the martyr syndrome, I think, where people yeah. are aware of their despair, but it's not my fault. I'm yeah. a product of my circumstances. And then the, the um, worst form of despair, which even calls it de demonic despair, um, is this idea of becoming so aware of it, but not able to do anything about it to where you become hardened to it. And that person that just, you know, when I think about my experiences of coming across people like that, they're the people that you know they need help, but they won't accept it. And they've just gotten so hardened off in the world that you know that they're just going to be locked in uh, to that, that lifetime of struggle and just not able to uh, transcend that to, uh, in some terms, we call it enlightenment, uh, in more contemporary terms, that state of, of emotional well-being, which I'm going to talk a little bit more. Well, interesting, and you know, I I think you know, as as you're as as you're thinking through some of these these areas, you know, we we all encounter those folks that, as you said, are just you know everything is somebody else's fault. They they can't look at at their own experience. And I think, you know, and I think maybe we all go through that. It's the, it, it's the child who has to blame the parent on everything, you know, and they can't get to the point of, of differentiating from that. I, you know, I've seen, um, I've seen that happen. I think I even, you know, maybe had to go through a little stage where, where, you know, I was blaming my mom and dad for everything, for everything mm -hmm. that went, went in my, you know, life until I, I got to the point to go, you know what? they were doing the best they could in raising me and they gave me tools and I had, I was safe and I had all of these, these benefits and all of these, these, these good things. How, you know, what kind of turn that back in towards myself to say, what's going on here? You know, to start asking those questions is what's, what's causing me to need to lash out or hook on to, you know, it's somebody else's fault. Or then, you know, as you get to even that, that worst place where you you do just get get hardened. I've, you know, as a pastoral in, in pastoral counseling, the stuff you know that that I've seen of those people that are just so hardened by the pain and hurt they have gone through. And you know, the thing I'm curious about is trying. You can't give them the words to work through that because there's a reason they've gotten there. It's, it's just trying to help them uncover what's gotten them to that place because it's, you, you got to say part of it's real. I mean, it's there, mm -hmm. there's a real aspect of why they're hardened and why they're hurt. 
And so that my curiosity, and I suppose that in some senses is the question of enlightenment is what allows and, and are there tools we can give people that allow people to move away from that hardened place to being again being willing to be vulnerable, open up and 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 discover more about themselves in the midst of it because it can hurt it can hurt at times trying to to go through that well yeah and that's the dilemma that we have um because there's this part of you that uh, needs to acknowledge the uh, circumstances and acknowledge that there were some things you had free will choice in and there's other things you didn't have uh, choice over uh, you know in your family of origin until you became a point of separation from your family you're within a, uh, a, a uh, environment that a child doesn't have control over right and so come to terms with what do I have control over and this is where you know in, in uh, uh, you hear about the serenity prayer right of yep. let me have the wisdom to know the difference between the things I, I can't control and I can't control, right? Yep. Um, right. And right. so I think that's the important issue of awareness is to kind of understand where things are, but then you, that only takes you so far. Uh, and in my own life experience, uh, and you've known me a long time. You've watched me work through, and, and you, you know, as I was reading about Kierkegaard, I'm sure you can go, oh yeah, I watched, watched I would go through that. Uh, and, and you try to rationalize and reason and, and, and wrestle with it. And then it, that only takes you so far. Yeah. yeah, what do you do with those things that you really just can't find that place for? Yeah. Yeah, to, you know, I think I've used the image before. So a lot of times, you know, we think of our mind as a, a, a one of those old Rolodexes where it spins and spins until you can figure out where to put that card in. The difficulty is when you just can't find a place to put that card that's going to nicely fit and, and not come stumbling out again and, 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 and flowing through where you're just circling and circling and, and you can't find that place to rest until you, you can get, give it, in a sense, that sense of control of understanding every little dot and tittle of the world and, and have it all, all come together. But, well, and so, so this kind of gets me to, you know, how do you get past that, right? As a child, right. we start as a centralist, gimme, gimme, gimme. I remember this yep. one priest when I was photographing weddings, he always gave the same uh, same homily at a wedding and he always talked about the, the you know, when I, uh, when I, uh, was a child, I spoke like a child, and he used the metaphor of cookie jar and gimme, 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 more, more, more. Uh, yeah. And that maturity and mature love was about recognizing, uh, you know, the need for respect and, and boundaries and, and some of these things. And so this progression of the unconscious, where we just are, are biologically needy, uh, to then when we become intellectually engaged with what I like to think of it as the world the way we think it's supposed to be mm -hmm. and then we get confronted with reality which is not everything fits in these nice neat right. boxes uh right. and what do we do with that and then we start to figure that out and we raise our level of awareness we start to grow into some wisdom but that only takes us so far to where you hit that void where okay i understand it i've developed all this knowledge about it i've been able to self-reflect but now I'm still in despair, whether that be in the form of a depression, uh, anxiety, 
unhappiness or frustration, whatever that is. And at that point, that's when we need to leap into um, this idea of enlightenment that doesn't come through rational reason, but comes through an experience. And in fact, um, uh, you know, been able to gather a lot of resources over the years that all seem to come down to this, this leap of faith. Uh, in uh, the Buddhist tradition, there's a um, uh, woman by the name of Pima Chodron who wrote a book, uh, Taking the Leap, uh, which really was about, you know, gee, I did everything right, married two kids, and all of a sudden, husband left, and I had nothing, and no, no money, no resources, what do I do? Uh, and, I, and I'm not going to, you know, read the book if you want to uh, want to find out more, but this idea of where do we get to this sense of presence mm -hmm. of recognizing that the world, uh, this incredible experience, we're all interconnected, uh, and we have this kind of aha moment of, I'm breathing, I'm alive, I all, everything is well with me. It is, it is well with my spirit, Maybe. right? Yeah. And so when we talk about um, how do we get to that point, one of the paths can be through a, a faith practice, and many would argue that Christianity with the act of baptism is the first epiphany of, of surrendering to this void of higher power, uh, of being able to say, you know what, I'm not looking at my own pain, I'm looking up, I'm looking out, I'm looking interconnected, and I'm part of something bigger than myself, which is getting uh, to your, your favorite yeah. issue of, of, is it about my happiness or is it about my purpose? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. to speak. So, uh, which that led me down a path of looking at what is enlightenment and how do we measure it and how do we get there. Uh, okay. And that led me to the work of a gentleman by the name of Dr. Jeffrey Martin. He did an extensive um, uh, survey of um, literature related to enlightenment and, and looked at different cultural uh, expressions of the term enlightenment. So some people might call it mystical experience. Uh, some people would call it a peak experience, get into the more contemporary flow psychology. Uh, some people call it a transcendental experience. Um, uh, and, and this quote, the peace that, the peace that passeth understanding, uh, which I love that. Some call it a union with God, uh, and some call it non-dual awareness. I like the idea of we can just say it's well-being is kind of the, the generic term uh, that we're looking at. And so what he's done is he's been able to map out people that are experiencing a high level of uh, emotional well-being have a um, change in experience of each of these six categories. Starting with the sense of self, um, they move from a highly individualized sense of self to a greater level of distance, psychological distance, and the ability to connect more with others. Um, they have a, a, a sense of a, a overall uh, connection to the grand scheme of things that's greater than when they're in a low state of self-being, when they're, when they're just worried about their own initial needs. It's interesting. So what, you know, what, what I'm thinking about that is that psychological distance. You know, another one of my pet peeves is, is 
you know, there, there's a wave of Christianity that's, that's always so concerned about your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you know, and, and I'll say often, I don't, you know, give a hill of beans, I'll sometimes say it more colorfully, uh, about your personal relationship with Jesus, because I think to me, the calling of Jesus is always, um, is always towards, you know, towards the vulnerable, towards the community, towards the bigger, but, you know, when you talk about the piece that passes understanding, you know, it's, it's a way, I remember one of the, the pastor at the church I grew up with, it would always complete every sermon with, and now may, may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, keep or else it, or else it might be guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that, I, that, that idea is, isn't that, in, in a sense, it is what we do hope for as individuals is to find that sense of peace. And, and, I, li and I like the, the fact that this guy's using the word well-being, yeah. because I, that's, you know, in, in a sense of our, our purpose is, that's what we're looking for, is that just that deep sense of we are okay, that the, the, and, and, and we can work to help others see that they are okay as well. Yeah, and I also find that when I'm in service to others, when I'm doing something uh, for the well-being of others, I am less aware of my own unhappiness, if I had any. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's that whole idea of that focusing on the self yeah. can be a source of unhappiness, yeah. a source of, of despair. <laughs> Right. Well, it's sort of, it is ironic, right? Because this, I mean, this whole, I think that's, at least that's how, what I learned in college is, is if you are going to look for enlightenment, it's this individual path that takes you deep within yourself. And yet what actually helps us get better into ourselves is, is when we open ourselves up. It's, it's, it's an irony. It's a, and it's a tension that, 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 I think we, we always get to play with um, in, in the midst of our journey towards this. So. Well, and, and so as we go through each of these categories of well-being, I'm going to try to bring it back around to what's the real world application of this. When I think about okay. um, friendships, marriages, if I'm focused on are my needs being met versus what are the needs of my partner or what are the needs of my friend, um, I always have gotten in trouble. Uh, emotionally with that because that's a very uh, yeah. short-sighted whereas uh, if two people in a relationship are focused on what is the need of the other guess what things seem to balance out just fine uh, and so it's not what I need but rather what do you need and my needs will be met uh, by virtue of that shared common trait of concern for other thinking about um those people that have counseled through divorce, one of the, I would say just about to a person that the unhealthy part of those divorces is, is it does, it's, they didn't take care of this. And, you know, and you, you start on this, this cycle of all the negatives of, and, and they weren't thinking about me for this, and they weren't thinking about me for that. And it's how, how you switch that um, to say, okay, but, but for healing to happen for you, you need to understand, you know, probably go into that question then to say, and, you know, how are you, you know, how are you doing about the work of, of doing the things that that your, your loved one needed? And so 
one of the ways I, I, I talk about this is uh, anytime people are in a marriage and if, if it gets to be that you are looking to win, um, uh, you know, a fight, you're looking to win a conversation, you've already both lost. Well, so yeah. the next, next one I found incredibly fascinating was this idea that a higher sense of well-being comes about is associated with a significant reduction in the number of thoughts. And Interesting. yeah, I thought this was fascinating. And basically, um, it's a call. It's this idea that you can stop having so many self-referential thoughts uh, that we spend so much time worrying about what is somebody else thinking about me? Do they like what I'm wearing? Do, you know, they like my appearance, or you know, are, you know do they understand me? Uh, you know, all this sort of uh, negative self-scripts that go through your life. Think about if you could eliminate all the clutter in your mind to eliminate thoughts that reference yourself so that you can be clear uh, and, and content and know where, you, uh, where you're needed uh, to serve in your life, to find the purpose uh, and to become, uh, become less self-conscious. Right. I, I, you know, I, think, I think where my brain is going to is, is you know, your teenage years. And you're, you're going through your teenage years and you're sure that everybody is spending all their time thinking about what a fool you are and, and uh, you know, how, all the ways you screw up and how you look bad and how, you know, and we, we get this diluted sense. And I think it, it happens later too. So you, you make a mistake and you're sure that everybody is just dwelling on that mistake all the time. You know, and you forget if you just take a step back and simplify and to say, just with one thought to say, they're all going through their own stuff as well. Yeah. And, and I'm not thinking about that. So why do I imagine they're thinking about all those things with me? So I think, but I guess the, the place that this pushes me also, and I'm curious what, you, and I know you, your love of nature, but it's also, it seems like, um, when we've talked about fly fishing before, the thing I love about fly fishing, even though I'm terrible at it, at it is, is I, I just, I get to concentrate on that one thing of how am I presenting that fly? How am I presenting that fly? And just that, that rhythm, and you get into a rhythm of, of back and forth, and, and suddenly all the clutter in my brain starts to dissipate, and I am feeling better. I, yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, but, you know, what, I mean, do you have certain experiences? You say these all kind of line up. They, they do. And, and yes, and I've had that experience with fly fishing. It's what I love about it because it raises my awareness of the environment around me. Yeah. And I'm, I'm paying attention to which bugs am I seeing and what are their yeah. colors and, yeah. and trying yeah. to pick the fly that's going to match and, and, and all that. Uh, and throughout my life, I've had these um, moments of heightened awareness but it's, it's heightened awareness of things external. I'm aware of my perception. So when I was rock climbing, I was totally aware of everything about my body in relation to the rock. Um, I get to have that experience every time I get on the motorcycle and have a really great ride. And so, uh, you know, that's actually one of the steps and we'll get to the range of, of steps people could take to increase their emotional well-being. One of the steps is to engage in activities that heighten your awareness uh, of the external world so that you're not so cluttered with your own internal uh, what I like to refer to as our, our perseverating thoughts uh, the things that we just can't let go of 
Maybe it was the dispute at work yesterday that still on at you. Maybe it's worrying about that email you have to write at work the next morning. Uh, you know, the things that cause you to be thinking about yourself in relation to, uh, uh, and it, most of the time it's thinking about yourself that creates a negative energy. Um, and, and that we need to uh, release ourselves from those thoughts through uh, an engagement in, in strategies that can induce us to be more aware of our environment, our surroundings, and, uh, and, and the beauty that exists in every moment. I, you know, I agree. And, and I think there are, there are probably negative ways that that happens as well. I mean, the other place that would often happen, and I remember, especially when I was in that sort of teenage, early young adult angst, it would be on the soccer field for me. Mm -hmm. What happened is, is it was doing something physical and physical and suddenly your world becomes smaller. It's probably why I love sports is it, your world becomes smaller. You, you can concentrate on a few things and every once in a while you need your world to become smaller so you can open back up and say, all right, there's, there, there's a lot out there and now I can handle a little more again. Um, but I, I always joke, um, probably even through the time I, I was in the seminary, if people saw me on a soccer field, they would not have thought I was going to be a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> because it was just the place that, you know, emotions and everything else. But then I would end that and I'd be spent and it was simple again. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know how else to say that. But, well, and, and you just, you make me uh, reflect on this idea of a physical participation, being an active physical uh, person is an important step to our overall well-being. And, and we need to really be cautious about the fact that our modern technology is filling our lives with email, social media posts, news posts, all these things that quite often actually trigger the opposite of emotional well-being. Uh, research is showing that over and over and over. So this idea of getting out and being physically present in the world, actively engaged to the point of losing self-consciousness and, and becoming uh, selfless and fully engaged uh, in what you're doing is a really healthy restorative process. Which, yeah, which though, you know, those exercise gurus sort of have it in that sense. I mean, that, that is a place of well-being for them. The question I have is where, I, I think the tension that I can see is where does that positive addiction become negative? Um, so there are positive addictions that we have. Um, I remember reading a book when I was, I kind of went through my own self-help phase in college of reading and I was peer health educators, so we had to read a lot, bunch of self-help books, and one of them was called Positive Addiction, and, and it, you know, it, it says, obviously, a positive addiction is better than a negative, one of those negative addictions that are out there, but, but the experience I've wondered about and continue, and, and this probably be a topic for a different time, is what, where is it that that positive addiction can be destructive as well? So, I guess the question I'm asking, and maybe this has taken us down a road we don't want to go today, but the, the question I'm asking, and I'm curious, as you're, you're thinking about this from an emotional context of, you know, how, where is it that, what, when are those times that we need to give up that 
10 mile bike ride or a 15 or 20 mile bike ride or um, the, the ability to do physical in order to take care of something else for those families and those people. So I'm curious, those steps that we get to, uh, one of the questions I have is for parents that are so busy, what, what, how do we deal with that, that negative thing called time um, that is, you know, that, that, that tends to intercede for us too, which I, you're one of the busier people I know. And I think you, you are trying to kind of figure that out yourself anyway. As, Ab as you um, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Uh, one could argue I'm addicted to being busy. Um, and, and that's been my, my own recent growth is learning to pare that back and learning to make tough choices of prioritizing time and making sure, uh, I, I think there's two responses to your initial question about positive addiction. First of all, um, I, I do believe there are, for people that are struggling with addiction, such as alcohol, drugs, there are definitely positive addictions that can, can replace that addiction piece with something, you know, quite often people will get into marathon running or, or some other activity, right? But I, I think that's only going to take you so far on the well-being scale. Uh, and that real well-being allows for a less regimented approach to life. And that I think the, even the positive addictions, if it's let, uh, left to be too regimented, uh, can, can inhibit how far we go on the emotional well-being uh, spectrum. And it's all a spectrum. And there's no, there's no right or wrong. It's just there's a spectrum of it. And research is showing what that spectrum is. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very interesting. It's doing it both quantitatively as well as qualitatively. Uh, and so I'm going to come back to that a little bit more because we're going to actually talk about where faith and religious practice can fall into that category of um, positive addiction, if you will. Uh, and, and, and we'll get to that. The next, the next category, though, is, is uh, a rather simple one, it, it, uh, is the idea of our emotional life. We get a decrease in the range and experience of emotions, meaning we don't have those wide uh, jumps from the euphoric joy, which inevitably leads to the, the low and, and depressing dark areas of, you know, this idea that we kind of harmonize somewhere in between where we have a flattening out of emotions, but we have a more, a greater stability and just an overall going through life with a general sense that, you know what, I'm okay, you're okay, everything's okay. And I don't have the, the high peaks or the, uh, or the deep valleys uh, in my life. I guess I, the question I ask for you is where have you seen that play out the most for you? Um, I think where that's um, played out the most recently in my life is just this overall sense of contentment where I'm not active, as actively engaged in seeking a particular joy uh, I'm perfectly content just being home, which has been so important during the COVID-19 to just be, you know what, I'm okay. I, everything's okay. Yeah, I'm spending a lot of time at home. I'm working from home, but I'm blessed to have a home and I just feel very, very content. So, uh, and, I, and I know my, my wife and I have this uh, mutual experience where we just, we kind of go through patterns in a very uh, rhythmic 
uh, almost, it's just this nice little dance that we do in each other's lives. And we come together in the morning for coffee, we separate, we come back together. And the emotions, uh, the, the reduction of emotions and the greater stability is that lack of fear or that lack of drama, but rather that overall sense of uh, everything's fine, just content and, and not really trying to um, pursue overly peak emotion as, as a matter of just a more steady level uh, moving through life. It's a more graceful uh, moving through life that I feel like I, I've been able to experience over the last um, five, six years. Were you, were you ever an adrenaline junkie? I mean, it, were you one that sought those adrenaline rushes? Because I, I am thinking about those, those folks that do that too, but I've never seen you as that. I, you know, being that I, at the subconscious level, I was poor, probably more the system builder type. Um, I certainly have been uh, drawn to adventure, uh, meaning I, I used to rock climb, I used to mountain climb, um, and so, and I had a, a, a great need for travel and, and to go out and explore, and that inherently um, uh, adds risks to some, some uh, respect, but definitely the, the idea of going out into the world, exploring for the need for newness, novelty, uh, inquisitiveness, et cetera. So I definitely fit that category there, but it was always a, in a very self-reflective, I've had a process of, of uh, reflective journaling throughout most of my life. And so it's always been kind of a, a, a balance for me. Um, don't think it ever went too far. I was never that daredevil. Uh, one, I knew I wasn't physically gifted, so uh, I, I just couldn't do some things that other people could do at, at the level they did it. Uh, so I kind of always knew what my limitations were, but I think I've always operated at the fringe of this is my ability and, and desire. I've kind of aligned those things really well. And I do, I continue to do it with my motorcycle riding. Oh, fair enough. I, I, part of me is chuckling a little bit because I can hear, hear my youngest son right now say, okay, boomer, you know, and then what do you, what do you, you know, it's just, so I, I guess my question is, is what, you know, at what stage for us, because I, I would say I'm the same way. I'm finding more of a, a peace at being at home. I still love to travel, given the mm -hmm. opportunity. There's still trips I, I, I want to take, and I, I, and I find joy in that, too. But I'm, my wife is, is definitely more of a, a home person, or if she goes on vacation, she really wants to kind of set roots and be able to read and, and, and relax. And I'm, I'm follow, finding that, that definitely for a good portion of my vacations or my time at home, I, I'm enjoying that more and more myself, which is, as you said, helped during this, this pan, time of pandemic where we're, we're just not able to get out as much. How much, do you have a sense of how much you think just aging has helped you in that, that process? I think that is the gift of aging in some respects. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think, that, you know, I could lay out the roadmap to well-being and give it to a child, and that's not going to help them get there. Like, there's no, there's no um, recipe for this. There is only. There's no system, might you say? There I is not. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, here's the thing. What's, what's really interesting, too, is if anybody has somebody in their life that says, you need to do this 
to be happy and healthy. That'd be, be the, the person I would uh, walk away from. Uh, because anything that tells you do it my way is not honoring the diversity of um, the frequency and intensity of life experiences. This gets back to, you know, where does originality in our life come from? Where does authenticity come from? Um, how do we cultivate our own creative voice in life? It's the frequency and intensity of our life experiences that kind of helps shape us into uh, growing into wisdom. And, you know, frankly, I feel blessed to have survived young adulthood uh, and survived my um, uh, early, you know, 20s through 30s uh, because I did do some things that were pretty intense uh, risk-wise. And, and I survived enough to gain some wisdom and experience from it that helped me want to go further down that path, which is why we're here today at this podcast. Due to the length of today's conversation, we are breaking this episode in two parts. Please join us for the rest of the conversation in the next episode. Thank you for joining us today on The Spiritual Hedgehog. For show notes and more information, go to www.thespiritualhedgehog.com.